Hey, this is MM&M's Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large. Welcome to this MM&M Post-Trend Talks podcast titled Implementing an Answer-First Approach for Commercialization, How AI and Predictive Modeling Can Elevate Brands Today. Sponsored by Boundless Life Sciences. Boundless Life Sciences. At MM&M's Trend Talks, which took place May 11th in New York City, a group of A-level marketers from biopharma companies large and small gathered along with commercialization partners to discuss some of this industry's foremost challenges in a closed-door roundtable setting. Speaking of challenges, the need for commercial marketing teams to understand and better be prepared for their future market conditions is ever more pressing, with budgets tightening and competition growing. Those who are able to maximize AI and predictive modeling to shape their journeys and drive toward the answers needed can accelerate growth and ultimately market penetration. But how do we use that science and technology of AI as a tool so that we can use it going forward to full effect? To discuss this topic and help people in the industry work it into their existing workflows, we have two wonderful guests, Francesco Lucarelli, who's partner and chief commercial officer at Boundless Life Sciences Group, and Yash Gad, who's founder and CEO at Ringer of Sciences within the Next Practice Group. Francesco and Yash, welcome to the MMM Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Really excited about this one. Okay. So uh, first, just to start us off, uh, Francesco, can you kind of give us the overall philosophy of what you mean by an answer first approach? Yeah, exactly, Mark. It's one of the the theories of if we don't really define where we're going, then how do we get there? Uh, the, the, The idea of starting with the end in mind. And I know it sounds somewhat basic or simplistic at its surface value, but it's oftentimes one of those areas that you know, I've witnessed uh, and been part of in, in my experience, it, it, it gets ahead of you too fast. So we try and consult with our clients very early on of where are we trying to get to? Let's start there first. And if we understand what that answer is, ultimately the destination that we want to get to, then we can reverse engineer the process and the map to get there. Uh, what that also allows us to do is understand, hey, if there are two or three blind spots or unknowns, if you will, along that journey, we can ask those questions up front and that's really now where we're finding and where we're instructing our clients to bring in some of this, this technological data and machine-based learning to figure out, well, let's get those answers because maybe we can get those answers more efficiently, more effectively, utilizing some of the tools that we now have at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to build on that? Yeah, and some of these predictive models work best when, when you really have that hypothesis in mind and really know where you're going and what, what you want to drive toward instead of just kind of blindly applying a lot of, especially these, these AI models. And so, you know, coming, coming with an answers first uh, approach, it really does constrain the kinds of technology you want to bring to a problem. Mm-hmm. Great. So what are the three questions that you have to address early on in your minds to ensure a biopharma commercial success? It really comes down to a few things and, and, you know, limiting them to a number is oftentimes challenging because it's based on where is that co- that company at both culturally, evolutionarily, and where are they at in their life cycle of, you know, a, a multi-branded company that has a big portfolio? Is it a first to commercialization company that this is their first asset coming forward? So taking those things into consideration, then we really look at, okay, where are we playing within a particular healthcare environment? Is it a rare disease space? Is it more of a mass market space? Is it something that's more consumer driven than let's say, or excuse me, patient or caregiver driven than let's say it's driven by a specialist community? Based on those answers, or excuse me, those questions, then we start looking at what can we do to really identify the patients that are at risk 
and or being underserved. And that's one of the areas that as we're working and, and Yash and I do this with a number of our clients, that's where we try and help kind of shed the light on, you know, even the equity and inclusiveness of addressing and identifying those patients. I think we all know that even in clinical trials, right, there's dis- disproportionate balance of patients that are there. And that's where we oftentimes hear, well, the clinical trial isn't really what the real world is like. So if we can now use some of the data at hand, and again, as Yash mentioned, some of those predictive models to figure out, okay, well, what is that equal representation look like in the you know real wild world environment, then that allows us to get out in front of that. Um, Yash, I know you, you probably can can kind of specifically get into some of the, the needs-based pieces of that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, when you when you look broadly, especially at some of these like digital sources or at some of these like claim sources, you really can start dissecting, you know, different demographics, different patient populations, different focuses that, as, as Francesco said, like may differ heavily from, you know, where clinical trial started or where um, some of the researchers started and really start figuring out, you know, you know, where are there some demographic biases, where are there some concentrations of different demographics, and really unpacking how might we want to change targeting, messaging, you know, how might our models, you know, pull back some of these insights, or better yet, you know, what, you know, how might we want, want to change our predictive models based on some of these biases in the data? Hmm. So it's so it's life cycle of the brand, the the company, um, and then you know what what are the patient needs and and the demographics, and I like the the inclusivity and, and equity angle. One of the sort of takeaways I think from the uh, the Trend Talks event when we asked uh, Francesco where companies are in their evolution and, and their setup, so to speak for utilizing and embracing AI for planning purposes and efficiencies. It seemed like they were uh, pretty much, you know, in, in their in their infancy, <laughs> um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, um, or at least, you know, all over the map. So I think a lot, this next question is probably on a lot of people's minds. How can generative AI and, and machine learning be utilized for each of the different areas uh, that, that we just talked about? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because I, I think it really is something that a lot of folks are struggling with. And I, I think where our perspective comes in a couple of very specific areas here. So, you know, where we look to better understand patients, caregivers, healthcare providers, you know, we're really trying to unpack language and really trying to derive intent and behavior from the way they express pain points and things like that. Some of that can best be done, obviously, by a human reading every single piece of content and post that is generated by you know, all these different stakeholders. But where we can really start applying some of these large language models that have, that have come out is really then unpacking this at scale and really then applying this to how we understand intent and, and how language is changing over time and categorizing this. Um, and, and so this this explosion of, of predictive models has allowed us to really dive into this in a, in a more scalable way than than just having you know a, a giant team of analysts reading every single post and coding this and really trying to decipher language. On the generative side, then it really starts to become: can we use those same large language models that you know really unpack language to then generate content that resonates with that same group of people and uses the same kind of language that they might use? Hmm. Is that what we call large language models, LLMs, because they really unpack that language and they're, they're kind of geared toward answering questions in real language? Correct. I mean, they, they've studied, so you know, and these models rely on so many different sources of, of content and, 
they really have have understood the relationship between different words and different concepts, you know, at such a large level that it really allows you to then decipher language as a whole with some caveats um, and happy to get into that. But, it, you know, there there's a lot of caveats on how it understands that language. And so it's really pairing insights that we know about how patients and caregivers and healthcare providers talk about certain issues or certain drugs or certain disease areas and then applying these these language frameworks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To to each of the uh, of the questions uh, that that we earlier uh, addressed, um, so let's let's get into if if you would some case studies um, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing them. How are clients prepared and or embracing uh, this technology? Yeah, I'll start with that, and it's again you mentioned earlier, Mark. There is a different level of let's say uh, sophistication and or even adoption or willingness to bring it into the fold. Right? There's the the traditional, you know, fast, fast learners or those that want to be a little bit more pioneering and then those that want to kind of sit on the sidelines and watch it. But where the initial uptake is coming, at least experientially, what we've seen with our clients is folks are starting to begin to say, okay, how can we get better with the predictive modeling of things like forecasting and analysis and even PDE analyses and overall sort of omni-channel marketing mix, right? Are we now putting the right dollars and resources into the right channels? Are we appropriately supporting sales forces in the right way with our personal versus non-personal sort of expenditures? And then lastly, uh, and again, we we do have the the benefit of working with a number of different rare disease clients and several clients where it's first product to market or first commercial asset that a company has. And what we are discovering is, you know, oftentimes those are the groups that you know, they don't have a lot of the historical knowledge of having large pipelines and portfolios to rest upon. And and they're going about it a little bit of, you know, I don't want to say totally blind, but they are going about it a little bit of, wow, this is our first endeavor. So how can we get a little bit smarter? And that's where we've had a great opportunity to say there's a lot of historical analogs we can build from. I think you've heard me in the past say, let's look into the right data puddles of where do we go with the information and not you know, sort of dilute the issue by trying to boil the proverbial ocean. Um, and that allows them to sort of get those forecasting models and analysis plan for their launch uptake, their first year revenues a lot more accurately and with a degree of sophistication that going up to the C-suite, they can stand behind confidently and say, we feel good about this. Mm-hmm. And obviously underpinning um, a lot of those uh the use of predictive analytics um, and and healthcare triggers, if you will, is having a robust data platform. Have you found that a lot of companies are in in good shape there? You know, either they're building it themselves to have that platform running in the background, uh, whether that's, you know, kind of mapping HCP profiles to digital behavior or or on the patient side, uh, the same thing, uh, or they're kind of outsourcing um, those access to data lakes and whatnot. Yeah, largely, I think they are still outsourcing that, you know, we're finding when we're talking with a lot of these clients that they don't have a lot of these capabilities in house. Um, you know, a good example is, you know, the the one that Francesca was mentioning about um, some of these like marketing mix models, um, you know, companies that really could make use of this, they don't really have those capabilities built out in house. So they outsource that and they don't really have the ability to ingest that data. They don't have the ability to build those models. They don't have the ability to kind of then decipher those models. And I think it falls on us to kind of play each of those those roles and to build that data infrastructure that then they can leverage instead of trying to build it from scratch themselves. 
Um, and so we, we work to kind of pull in their data, you know, analyze it, but then bring the insights back to them. Um, and I think that's where some of our clients have found the most comfort level where they don't, they, they can come with the questions and don't really need to worry about the data platform itself. Right. Because even if you build your own, you still got to make sure it's updated and you know, that when Correct. you tap it for insights, you're getting something beyond just kind of some generic, uh, you know, uh, insights about the audience that you're trying to develop a campaign for. So speaking of that, um, you know, it, it's good to hear like, you know, some folks are making this technology actionable uh, in their marketing. What, what have you found are some of the biggest concerns or, or other, other challenges? So I'll, I'll start there and Yash fill in as well. But I, I think the biggest concerns are, again, around the level of sophistication and understanding of it. So there's this whole idea that, and we are oftentimes consulting groups with with the idea of demystification of what, what this technology or what this data is, right? There's a little bit of a, you know, there's a little bit of an Oz mentality right now and folks are wondering what's behind the curtain. So we've got to try and demystify that for them. Uh, secondarily to that, you know, once it's looked at, there is also still in some circles, a little bit of a fear factor of, is this going to displace, you know, a position or a person or a job function and role? And I think that's where we are also trying to consult individuals to let them know this is a tool. This is not a, this is not a person, right? And, and again, like any good technology, it's how do you utilize it and implement it for good, for efficiency, for the betterment of what the individual does? Uh, I think even in our trend talk discussion, someone reminded us that, you know, it's, it's the co-pilot, it's not the pilot. Um, and that's what's mm -hmm. most important, right? We still need, you know, the human intellectual capability and capacity to be the true overall pilot. But how can we, you know, fly quicker, if you will? How can we fly a little bit more smarter with some advanced radar and tools and things of that nature? Sure, sure. Yeah, like there was an another analogy I heard that, you know, your your job probably won't be replaced by AI, but it may be replaced by somebody who uses AI. So it's, you know, there's a need, <laughs> need to, uh, to get up to speed and to start, start using these technologies. Josh, you're also shaking your head there. You want to add on that? Yeah, it's it's great analogy. I love the, the Copilot analogy because I, I agree that, you know, it's these tools don't function on their own. They can't function on their own. They really need that human guidance and that human intuition on how to translate. And we really have been kind of think, you know, serving this function of trying to unpack, like, what are these generative models? What are these predictive models? What's under the covers? And not just that, but what are the limitations because of how they're implemented? What questions can they not answer or not answer well? Or what can they not do well? Because I think that really helps you know, really couch like the kind of recommendations that we can base on them when these um, clients understand the technology fully. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you would agree that AI um, is not necessarily the answer, but it's a tool to help you generate the answer, right? Exactly correct. Right. And, and I think it, it really, you know, is not something that you can um, just broadly ask like general questions, but you need to come to it with a specific question. Like you, the human needs to really come at it with that, that perspective and not just look at it as a crystal ball that is going to reveal magically the answers mm -hmm. um, to you and, and really work hand in hand, knowing the limitations of the technology, what answers it can give you back. Sure. Right. Right. Um, that's very important that that latter point, you know, like we used to say garbage in, garbage out, you know, back in the early days of programming, right? Um, know, know the limitations, know um, what, what it can and can't do. Um, should generative AI be used in patient facing content? 
I have a very strong opinion on this. I, I think at least for the technology as it is now, I would say no, only because I think from my perspective, there's still a lot, lot to be had with generative models in terms of accuracy and facts and, and things that just aren't really regulated well within the system as it is right now. But I'm sure Francesca has a different perspective. Yeah, this is one of those areas where Yash and I have some pretty healthy debates. And so I, I will give a no and response to that. While, while I fundamentally agree with what Yash is saying on the no side of it, right? We don't want to turn over and start allowing, you know, content to be, uh, dare I say, mismanaged. You know, there's so much about disinformation and misinformation that's out there in the market across a number of different categories, let alone healthcare. Uh, that, you know, we wouldn't want to sort of manifest that. Now, where the and part of my response does come to the surface, though, is we have the ability now to truly, uh, dare I say, you know, identify and target patients down to a level that, you know, only before would have been theoretical in nature. And that's where I think the tools can be used to harness elements of, you know, how do we go into you know, again, disproportionately represented populations in lower socioeconomic areas of the country or in uh, racially identified groups that don't have the same access to health care. You know, there's opportunities where we can use this to help identify them and then better relate and communicate with them. So I don't think that the, the content con control should be turned over, so to speak, but I think the better way of identifying, including them, communicating with them, that's where I think we have an opportunity to, again, I'll, I'll reiterate, get better, smarter and faster. Mm -hmm. Sure. And we, we didn't talk about this earlier, you know, when, when I asked you about um, the, the concerns that folks have about this technology. But, you know, we, but we did discuss it at the Trend Talks live event was that a lot has happened, you know, since IBM Watson's well-publicized stumbles in applying AI to uh, disrupt, quote unquote, healthcare. Um, and, you know, this was a kind of a chance to take the temperature uh, in the room of pharma companies as to how they are approaching it. And it seems like the fact that ChatGPT was kind of unleashed uh, on the public, you know, last December, and it has kind of raced to such, um, uh, you know, uh, saturation, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, and, and kind of entered our, our popular culture. It's kind of bringing the industry along with it um, to, to a certain extent. Um, but, but do you think that um, that is also kind of hampering the industry, you know, kind of the experience that they had, you know, in the past with in, in incorporating this technology or are they kind of going, going reluctantly forward in, into it? I think, you know, and, and Yash will be interested, you know, you, you probably have a, a yes and to my response. I, I think initially in some instances, the answer is yes. Uh, there are a few that might show the scars or might have uh, too heavily, if you will, invested in it, whether it be financially or intellectually. And I think they are some that do hold those scars. But in my experience, those are some of the bigger companies that had the assets to invest at the time. I think some of the, the smaller and more emerging companies were, you know, not necessarily going all in at that point. And I think what they're watching is, you know, a lot of other industries around us right now embrace this and realizing that this is a little bit different. And this is something that, you know, if they don't adapt or adopt, they're going to be left behind. Sure. Yashka, you want to build on that? Yeah, it's interesting because like I I see that, you know, the, the main difference here between 
the you know the chat gpt and, and kind of you know watson and some of the other systems that have kind of preceded it are really it's accessibility i think this the chat gpt is so much more accessible to every every level of the organization that it is hard to completely lock it out and and everybody knows how to use it everybody kind of has played with it um and and can see kind of how it would apply to the work that they do more holistically. And I think that's the scary part maybe for some companies because there are no guardrails on how it should be used, where it should be used, when should it definitely not be used. Um, whereas before it was something that was under the, the purview of a, of a data science team that had to work to kind of implement and introduce this technology into various parts of a healthcare ecosystem. And so I think this this presents a very different kind of problem. And I, I think it's it's made it easier to adopt or for, for the, you know, for larger scale to adopt, but comes with other kinds of problems now because it is so easily accessible. Sure. Sure. And we're seeing, you know, also we should mention, you know, on the R and D side, we're seeing pharma companies make public announcements about, you know, going all in on AI there. Um, but those announcements kind of, um, noticeably absent from those announcements oftentimes is how they're using it on the marketing side. And so, you know, this, topic that we're talking about today kind of really fills in the gap there in terms of, you know, it's sort of a work in progress, but you, you're giving some real concrete, you know, uh, case studies here for it, which, which we all appreciate. Um, moving, moving right along here, um, how is Boundless currently using the technology to, to support new offerings and, and, and strengthen brand engagement? So there's a couple different areas marked to that end, and, and Yash, again, please fill in areas that I may overlook. But one of the cases that I'll give you an example of that Yash was just speaking of is, you know, we're working with one of our clients that has a, you know, a multiple product portfolio, uh, you know, almost almost uh, six or seven different products. And they've always been faced with the challenge of, you know, not only the traditional what's first, second, third out of the bag, so to speak, for the reps, but, you know, what products do we continue to invest in? Which ones do we uh, you know, I don't want to say pull back, but which ones do we scale down in? What are the products that need personal versus non-personal support? And so, you know, Yash and, and his group with the, the data scientists involved in it are, you know, working on some complex algorithms and, and, and approaches where, you know, we are not only providing them with concrete evidence of, you know, where and how to reprioritize that that portfolio, but also which markets are more receptive to certain areas within that portfolio. So a, a Northeast environment may look entirely different than a Southwest environment for the same product offerings, which, you know, most companies really struggle with, with concrete examples and, and, and the way to reprioritize things like that. So that's one area. Another is, and this is, uh, you know, as, as Boundless continues to be Boundless, uh, we'll be introducing another offering, hopefully in the next 30 days or so, but that's really going to fundamentally embrace how do we bring AI into the full sort of what has been known as kind of the, you know, the D-A-O-R suite of what companies offer. And so uh, all I can say at this point is more to come on that. Uh, so stay tuned. Sure. Okay. Yeah, to add to the you know the predictive models that uh, that Francesca was talking about, you know, in terms of um, kind of media optimization or or kind of effort optimization for a you know large portfolio of, of products, you know, it's it's interesting because you know historically these marketing mix models have been you know something you could run off of Excel or you know just run off of a couple of channels and give some kind of broad recommendations, but with a lot of the current uh, machine learning tools and, and and things, it's become much much more scalable to look holistically across, you know, personal promotion, non-personal promotion, a lot of different mix of activities and holistically 
optimize and, and, and think about how, how you're changing these tactics on a market level, on a per provider level, and, and really um, look at, at what is the most effective use of, of dollars um, across various products. And it's really interesting that, that you can now do these, you know, it just doesn't take weeks and months to do these kinds of analyses days or you know less less than a week sometimes and it's it's really exciting time for um, companies to be using this these kind of approaches um, and we're we're working hard you know at, um, you know between us and boundless to really push the the envelope of what is possible and how quickly can we turn around these insights uh, for some of our clients great great well despite the fact that there is a fair amount of trepidation many marketers are bullish about incorporating ai into their offerings to perhaps catch up with their r d colleagues uh so francesco and yush thank you so much for helping to demystify how ai driven predictive modeling can be used to optimize the marketing mix and uh, incorporate it into other aspects of commercialization we really appreciate it absolutely thanks mark really appreciate the opportunity and the time thanks mark you got it. Anyone who has questions about this uh, topic can go to boundlesslife.com or contact Yash and Francesco through uh, MMM itself. Okay, thanks again, everybody. This has been Mark Yaskowitz at MMM signing off. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.